Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Homelessness and addiction catastrophes on our city streets seem intractable. Unhygienic squatter tent cities, human waste on sidewalks, used needles littering our parks, crime, collapsing commercial districts. It's enough to make one turn away in despair and allow areas of our once most beautiful cities to become no-go zones. But some refuse to yield. One is veteran independent journalist Jonathan Cho. Cho focuses his journalism on homelessness, drug addiction, and the mental health crisis ravaging America through hard-hitting video narratives. Cho is a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth and Poverty, covering homelessness issues for its Fix Homelessness Initiative. Prior to joining Discovery, Cho spent several years as one of the lead reporters at KOMO-TV, consistently the top-rated television station in Seattle. His in-depth stories on crime and deep-dive investigations into the homelessness crisis led to measurable results in the community, including changes in public policy. Cho has more than two decades of experience in television news, behind the scenes and in front of the camera, for ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS, and Tribune. He has also been nominated and honored with multiple industry awards, including an Emmy. As an independent journalist, Cho also contributes regularly to the Mill Creek View and Linwood Times and has reported on exclusive stories in the past year for Daily Wire and the Post-Millennial. Cho is a New England native and Boston University Journalism School graduate. Jonathan, welcome to Humanize. Wesley, thanks for having me. Sure. You know, you spent a, a career in television journalism and using video techniques to tell stories. What got you interested in that endeavor? Uh, well, I started off as a uh, sports sports reporter. Uh, I was always a uh, you know, huge fan of the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball. But by the time I got into college, I realized uh, I wasn't going to be playing any Division I sports. So uh, <laughs> as a compromise, uh, what's the best way to still stay involved in the game and on the sidelines? And that's through journalism. So I kind of went down the road of sports journalism. But got tired of that, then went into business news, got tired of that, and I realized I need to be a general assignment reporter so I can cover it all. And uh, when did you start doing that? Uh, wow. I think back in 1998, I was still in college at the time, and uh, you know, I was interning. Uh, let me just say to all the aspiring journalists out there, you don't need journalism school. The key is internships. 
So I really oh, that's cut very my interesting. Teeth. Yeah, I really cut my teeth in the newsrooms in Boston, uh, rough and tumble, kind of a top news market, one of the elite TV markets in America. So I'm really uh, thankful for that. But I saw the pros and uh, professionals out there, and they let me go out and shoot stories and even report a little bit. And that's kind of how I got to this point. And I still love what I'm doing. Why did you uh, shift your focus from general reporting to more specific uh, issues such as homelessness and the mental health crisis? Well, it it really kind of became front and center when I uh, finally moved to Seattle, when I moved to the uh, ABC affiliate, uh, Como TV, uh, nearly four years ago. Um, you know, I'm a Boston kid, and of course, homelessness, drug addiction, mental illness is everywhere, but I'd never seen it you know, front and center like this, uh, ever, uh, except here in the Pacific Northwest. So, uh, that became my beat and I took over the homelessness beats. Uh, and part of homelessness is also crime, drug addiction, and mental illness. So it kind of all, in, it's all encompassing all in one. And that's become my focus now, uh, for the past four years. Do you think, uh, traditional media like you used to be part of, uh, covers these issues adequately? Uh, short answer, no, absolutely not. Um, they're they're failing miserably. Um, and there are various reasons for that, especially now uh, as we head into 2024. It's the state of the news industry. Uh, it's not the same. Uh, you have a lot of these corporate conglomerates, especially, um, and I'm speaking from the TV side, uh, that own uh, most of these television stations in America, just a handful of corporate owners. And this isn't a focus of theirs because it's not, quote unquote, brand safe. You can't sell diaper ads next to somebody overdosing on fentanyl, okay? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you need to be able to sell, you know, your your Nikes and your Lipton tea. And because um, at the end of the day, this is a business. Uh, it's not a public trust anymore. And when we don't have fair and accurate coverage of actually what's happening in the community, uh, that becomes, in my opinion, a danger to democracy when our citizens don't have the full picture uh, and they don't have all the details and facts to make decisions. You know, I, I, I do a lot of public policy advocacy myself, and I've been part of stories um, that the uncomfortable portions thereof media saw but refused to cover. And the first time I saw this, I was utterly shocked by it. And then I came to realize that they didn't want to offend people who might be their otherwise be their supporters. Yeah, you hit it right on the head, and I think that's a delicate balance. You, now these days, you rarely have that courageous newsroom leader, the news director who's willing to chase the truth at all costs. In fact, there's an equation being done behind the scenes when you're a decision maker or manager in newsrooms. You have to determine, just like you said, Wesley, how controversial is this going to become? Because you don't want to cover issues that are polarizing. You need to get the masses. And again, more viewers, the masses, more ads. This is a business at the end of the day. <laughs> That's awfully cynical, but I think it's realistic. Now, what can you do then as an independent journalist that you couldn't do when you were a journalist employee, if I could use that term? Uh, well, I can now cover about uh, 90% of the stories I wasn't covering before when I was working in corporate news. And I think, uh, you know, after being, you know, an independent journalist and now a senior fellow, I have that freedom to really chase those stories, to show the raw realities on the ground. And, you know, I think the reason why uh, our work at Discovery has been so impactful uh, is because we focus on video. We are video first. You know, videos go viral. News articles don't. 
and we've been, again, showing really what's happening. And, you know, people can accuse me of making things up. And I say, what are you talking about? Just look at my video. Uh, so, you know, that's really been sort of indisputable evidence that I've had to really uh, show what's happening. And, you know, after, again, this time being an independent journalist, it's also good to know uh, that uh, the politicians, the elected officials are also watching because they can't ignore what I'm showing. Take us through a typical day for you where um, how do you how do you find a story and, and then how do you pursue it and then present it? Yeah, well. You know, when I was working in, in corporate media, we'd have morning meetings where, you know, all the reporters, producers, and managers would be in the same room, and we'd throw around pitches, ideas that our sources would give us, or, you know, stories we may have seen in a local newspaper that we'd want to do, uh, and then, you know, it'd get green-lighted or, or declined. Um, now that I'm independent, I'm essentially a one-man show, so I, I'm the news director, the producer, the reporter, the editor. So I get to decide what I want to cover. And uh, my metric is really simple. What's the video? What am I going to see first? Uh, so I go after that. Uh, and then, of course, you know, why does it matter to the community? Um, and it, what's happening now? So those are some of my standards and metrics. And, and ultimately, who's going to talk about it? I really have to find that personalization. So if I have sort of those ingredients in my story... I go after it, but I get news tips all the time. My DMs and my inbox is just packed right now. Uh, you know, I tell my boss, uh, the president of Discovery, who sort of oversees the Center on Wealth and Poverty program. I mean, I'm like, I'm behind like 20 stories right now. I need some help. But uh, here's the the inconvenient truth right now, like I said, in, in journalism. We want to hire some of the best and brightest journalists right now, but they're hesitant to come over because they don't want to focus and cover this stuff. Because yeah, it's not, it's not easy. It's, it's got to be tough. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're looking at um, uh, a wreckage of human lives. And, and it also, let me ask you this, is, can it be dangerous? Are, are, are you dealing with people who have, could become violent? <laughs> I mean, Wesley, just look at my videos. I mean, it is insane what I'm capturing out there. I've had people chase me with axes, knives, nunchucks. Um, I need I need good running shoes and an insurance policy covering this beat because, you know, these homeless encampments, you know, it's not just the homeless. Um, you have people who are mentally ill, drug addicted. And the worst part about this is that you have criminals who are preying on these people. You have the drug dealers who come by regularly. I've seen guns at encampments. I've seen prostitutes. I see women being trafficked out of these places. This is really happening in America. Yet nobody wants to talk about it because guess what? If you're an elected official and this is happening in your city or your community, you're going to have to do something about it. And I think that's where the accountability piece comes in, in terms of the work that I do. I'm trying to spotlight this stuff, not just to kind of show what's happening, but to hold our officials accountable. We need change. We need policy change. And if it's not working, we've got to correct course. And I feel like that's my job being an independent journalist. I'm a watchdog. I'm part of the fourth estate. So w when you decide to, you, you get tips that there are stories. Uh, in fact, we were going to record this on a different day and you had to call me and say, oh my gosh, I'm chasing a story. Can we reschedule? Uh, that That's probably your life, right? Every day. I mean, Wesley, I'm looking at the clock right now. I'm like, I, I got to get to two stories today. <laughs> but I've carved <laughs> out this time for you because I really wanted to talk about this uh, important work that's happening on the ground. But yeah, every day there's breaking news. And 
you know, the, the toughest part for me on this job, honestly, is not necessarily the danger I face each day or the risks. It's so frustrating when I can't cover all these stories that need to be told. Uh, so that's probably one of the most frustrating parts of this job. We need more journalists, more courageous people out there willing to chase these stories. And I have to tell these community members right now, you know, outside of Seattle, Seattle's the big city. That's where all the news is happening. Most of it's happening in King County, but there are other counties. There are other cities in Washington state dealing with similar issues. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I can't get out there because it's two hours away. And I've got yeah. to cover all these stories in Seattle and put out the fires here before I can get Plus there. Plus, you've got Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Philadelphia. Uh, a lot of our major cities are, are going through this. Now, I, I was going to ask you a little later about this, but let's let's hit it now. If somebody wants to see these videos that you're producing, do you have a YouTube uh, station or how do they find it? Yeah, I'm pretty much on all the social media platforms. Uh, but, the you know, my work primarily lives on fixhomelessness.org. Again, that's fixhomelessness.org. Uh, but as we know, all the research and data now points to social media. That's where most of the Americans now uh, are, are consuming their news and off iPhone. So, you know, my handle on X, formerly known as Twitter, YouTube, uh, is at Chosho, C-H-O-E-S-H-O-W. Um, and I was recently permanently banned from TikTok, uh, <laughs> one of the most popular video sites out there, because... My content, even on TikTok, is just too controversial because, uh, again, at the end of the day, it's about selling ads for these social media brands as well. And, you know, it's a shame that even on social media, depending on the site, you're seeing a lot of censorship happening. And you're actually able to reach more people this way than through traditional means, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, look, all, all the numbers and the data shows uh, TV viewership is plummeting. A TV is not going to go away tomorrow. I think it's still going to be around in, in the next five years. Uh, but viewership is all moving online. I mean, all the consultants are telling TV station groups right now, you better figure out your digital strategy. And that requires you to be on social media. And I think, you know, I hear complaints and gripes from my former colleagues all the time. They're like, Cho, you left at the best time. Not only do I have to now focus on my deadline, I have to figure out what my TikTok video is going to be, what my X video is going to be, what my breakout is going to be, what my tease video is going to be. Oh, and by the way, I've got to now write my web script. So journalists are just being asked to do more with less. That's what's happening in this business right now. So tell us a couple of the stories you've covered to give give uh, the listeners a flavor for some of the uh, issues you, you come across on the streets. You know, each day I go out and I don't know what I'm going to see. Um, I'm usually at a homeless encampment, and I just see the human wreckage, the urban decay, and I'm always recording. So, you know, I, depending on what I see, depending on who I meet, you know, I'll break out some shorts, short interviews, um, and those usually do well online because, you know, people just want to kind of see what's going on. But sort of my passion and my specialty is still investigative journalism. So I take these deep dives into stories, and I focus on stories that really, again, hold public officials accountable if there's government corruption, if there's waste, if there's, again, a policy uh, that's failing. I'm going to call that out. Uh, I've done so many stories, Wesley. Kind of that's, I can't believe I'm saying this, but that's like one of the gotcha questions today so far. <laughs> I can't even remember all the stories that I've covered, but the stories I'm focusing on right now are really about exposing uh, this failing housing first policy that's being used in so many uh, states in America right now, what that basically means is that 
Uh, public officials believe that if you give an apartment or studio to people living on the streets, uh, then that would solve homelessness. But uh, our data, our research, my reporting has clearly shown that that's not the case at all. In fact, that's not working because it doesn't deal with the root causes of homelessness, which is mental illness, broken relationships, and of course, now the ravages of drug addiction, especially fentanyl. You have experts on, on, on the field now finally admitting that they've never seen anything like the drug fentanyl and what it's doing to people. Uh, and uh, that is exacerbating this homeless crisis. So, uh, you know, I'm doing stories that uh, sort of expose and show uh, where the failures are. And also, I offer solutions in my stories. And whether or not public officials and elected officials want to take those up is up to them. But the voters also see my stories um, and they'll have to you know, consider who they vote for. If they want to go with candidates who are pushing failed policies, then so be it. But at least they know now that there is an alternative. And in my opinion, the truth about really what's happening, a story that I can at least preview, uh, I'm, I'm going to be focusing on in the coming months, uh, is uh, a, a huge investigative piece uh, that shows the migrant crisis. Um, illegal immigration now impacting Washington state. And it's happening everywhere, as we know, as we've seen those uh, incredible images at the border. But that's all here in Washington state now. And you have some local churches that are harboring uh, these migrants. Uh, but here's the problem. The problem is that it's straining homeless resources. So the question now becomes, who do you prioritize? These migrants from other countries who've come in here illegally? What about the homeless? And that's the debate and that's the tension right now. And all of these elected officials that I found, and you'll see in my reporting, have been caught with their pants down. They don't have a solution or strategy right now. And that, I believe, is going to be one of the biggest stories going into 2024. Oh, that I'll be looking forward to seeing those stories. And with regard to housing first, I've covered that issue myself. And, and the problem is that in order to get the there's no requirement on the part of the recipient in order to uh, get the housing voucher or to get the housing uh, room. They don't have to agree not to take drugs. They don't have to agree not to commit crimes. They don't have to agree to get job training or do anything. They have no responsibilities. And as a consequence, there's no change in their lifestyle. Is that Would you agree with that? Wesley, that sums it up perfectly for your listeners. Look, I know the reality is I think most Americans don't know what's happening in, in the world of homelessness, but what I call and what many have called for uh, the homeless industrial complex is very real. Um, look, what's really happening with Housing First is that these men and women are simply being warehoused, out of sight, out of mind. The elected officials say, hey, great, let's just get them off our streets and let's put them into these you know, apartments or studios. But like you said, there are no requirements. And you know, exacerbating the issue is that they also follow, quote unquote, this harm reduction policy. In many of these you know, apartment complexes where they're putting the homeless right now, they're offering also drug paraphernalia. They're giving out free needles, meth pipes, syringes. I have that all on video. One of my investigations shows me following one of these formerly homeless men going into these apartments. He shows me his room, but then he goes downstairs to get all the supplies so he can do fentanyl behind closed doors. Now, a lot of these places say no drugs allowed, but where's the enforcement and who's checking? And that's the problem. So we're now in this vicious cycle of people out of sight, out of mind, 
but their issues are not really being addressed. Because here's the kicker. The experts say in this housing first policy and strategy under harm reduction will only help them when they're ready, when clearly they need intervention. Well, when you enable them, they're not going to ever be ready, right? Yeah. And that's why the homeless industrial complex is alive and well, because the cycle- Is there a lot of money in it for the activists who participate in this? Not, well, not just the activists, the, the housing providers, the, the, the folks giving away the needles, the, the counselors. I mean, billions of dollars are being wasted and have already been wasted. I mean, here in, in Seattle, there's a, an authority called the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. Uh, they, you know, Discovery Institute, my colleague Caitlin Axe put out this incredible report uh, that showed uh, the, this, this project called uh, you know, that, that had a partnership with these corporations like Microsoft and, um, you know, Alaska Air and the Balmer Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, they gave $10 million, but all of that money was wasted. So they had to shut down this program called Partnership for Zero. Um, and there's no accountability. Um, so we're back at the drawing board. And this program was supposed to reduce homelessness in the city of Seattle down to about 30 people. And yet homelessness in the numbers are worse than ever. And yet you also talk about, you know, people getting housing vouchers and so forth, but there's mile after mile of people living in tents or, or cars or RVs. How is it that uh, we can spend that kind of money and still have that kind of public squalor? Well, it's because there's no accountability. At the end of the day, who's, who's recording the metrics? Who's checking to see what the standard of success is. If you listen to a lot of these homeless providers, when they hold these press conferences, when you, you know, go to the press conferences with the city officials responsible for handling this, the reporters, the few reporters that show up will ask, so what is the metric for success? How will you know when this is working? They won't directly answer that ever because there's no answer. They just say, we need more money. It sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that success is not actually the priority, that the priority is to receive the money and provide the services. It's almost like a uh, um, to create a, a sense of dependence, and that also provides employment for the people who provide the services. Am I being unduly cynical there? Well, I, I think what you're doing is just highlighting the truth of what's been happening. You look at these homeless agencies receiving these government grants, and the CEOs and the executives are making a quarter of a million dollars. And then you have, you know, their lieutenants, you know, making high six-figure salaries as well, and so on and so forth. If you solve homelessness, what do you think happens to their jobs, Wesley? Yeah, that's right. It that, all that's goes away. That that's my concern is that in our effort to uh, kind of create a therapeutic society, you always the therapist wants to continue to be working and receiving the money. Um, are, are we in a state in at least in parts of our cities of social anarchy? I think we're getting close. I can only speak for, you know, Seattle right now. Uh, I, I see it almost every weekend with protests now, uh, you know, Folks on either side, you know, you know, of the Israel-Hamas war, you know, going at it. We saw it with the BLM riots. 
several years ago. So again, it depends on what your definition of anarchy is, but if it's, you know, social unrest, you know, violence, you know, anti-police sentiment, destabilizing society, then yeah, we've already have seen glimpses of that. And I feel like we're, we're heading down that direction. Yeah, that's my sense too. You talk with people who are experiencing homelessness or the unhoused, as they're sometimes called, on a daily basis. What are they saying about the situation? The actual homeless? Yes. It, it, it's a. I want to be very clear. There is no one size fits all, Wesley. Um, and I think that's the problem with a lot of these policymakers. Uh, they create plans and strategies that's you know, they think will apply to everybody, but that's just not the case. There's a wide spectrum. You've got the homeless, you know, woman, the single mom who just lost her job and, you know, now can't pay her rent and uh, you need some help, you know, for a few months getting back on her feet versus the other extreme where, you know, you have someone who got kicked out of their home because they got hooked on fentanyl and now they don't want to even go back because they want their fix. Um, so it, 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 it really is this wide spectrum. I wish we had more time. Part of my work is highlighting what people say, how they're feeling. But, you know, at least when it comes to what they're seeing in terms of strategies, the homeless at the end of the day are, are men and women. They aren't any different from us. You know, right. they're, they're, they're struggling. They're human beings. And that's the sort of, you know, perspective I have every time I go out. When I talk to somebody, they're like, they're my friend. Like, They'd be my colleague, yet they're just in a different circumstance. And and they follow the news, they read, and they know what's going on. And a, a common complaint right now is we're hearing about all this money going in to service providers uh, to help us, but how come we're not seeing it yet? Why am I still here on the streets? You know, why am I not being offered the help that I thought was coming? Now, of course, you know, part of this spectrum, again, Wesley, is you also now have a nomad class. You have men and women who literally have told me on the record, and I have interviews uh, of this, where men and women are saying, I am done with society. I don't want to pay rent anymore. I don't want to pay bills. I just want to live on the streets. And they also say, we also are, are in Seattle because we know we can get free resources. We're going to get no questions asked, you know, uh, help. And that's why the nickname, uh, Freeattle, is is so popular out here so you have that ecosystem as well so it's a really complicated debate this is ongoing i don't think it's going to be solved in my lifetime sir yeah say that nickname again free addle <laughs> oh free addle okay yeah, free um, addle. seattle's nickname is free addle among some in the homeless community so you you've described different uh, types of people who who are the unhoused uh the woman who loses her job and may be sleeping in her car uh and but is not drug addicted or mentally ill, are there capacities for her to receive help and and uh, uh, assistance getting on her feet? There is, but it's complicated. As I was talking about the strategy, based on what I've seen, all the current policies seem to be in place to help uh, the most chronically homeless, um, and and the the people who are sort of in the middle and who just need a helping hand, you know, aren't getting the help. So where I'm, at least from the government, so where I'm seeing a lot of that help coming from are the nonprofits now, uh, the Union Gospel Missions, the Salvation Armies, and a lot of these church groups. Um, where I've seen some of the most success are from the actual nonprofits. Uh, there's a, there's another group out here called We Heart Seattle. 
another one called The More We Love. They've been doing incredible, exceptional work because they also don't have bureaucracies and, and the red tape. You have individuals who are just passionate and mobilizing volunteers from you know, their local food bank or from their local churches. And I'm seeing they're the ones making a huge difference. They're also the ones that are also able to quickly identify that single mom and say, you know what? Let's get you just a few motel or hotel vouchers for the next few months, and let's get you back on your feet. And that type of personal touch, uh, that type of strategy is what I'm seeing as the most effective versus, again, this sort of government approach, uh, casting a wide net. Yeah, on a previous episode of Humanize, I interviewed Jim Palmer. Uh, who runs the Orange County Rescue Mission and engages in that very kind of work. And he told me about the successes that they've been able to have because of the very things you're describing. Uh, what about mental illness? Uh, we, we hear that a, a lot of this problem is caused by people who are mentally ill or no longer receiving any kind of treatment. Uh, what is your experience with regard to mental illnesses? I, I admit, Wesley, this is probably the hardest part of my beat because it's also something that's very difficult to show. I mean, I'm no expert. How can I tell if somebody's really mentally ill or not? Is the guy talking to a wall by himself considered mentally ill? Probably, but then there are also a lot of cases in between. So it's really hard to assess who's mentally ill and who's not. But I can say I believe the, the drugs, the fentanyl on the streets, the meth, that's not helping somebody. That's for sure. Um, with their yeah. mental illness, when somebody <clears throat> is overdosing and gets Narcan like five, six times on the streets. I mean, I'm no doctor, but I'm sure their brain cells aren't fully functioning or there any longer after being out like that and near death. So that's all contributing to what I'm seeing on the streets. But yeah, this is one of the most heartbreaking pieces because we also don't have enough beds. We don't have the funding uh, to get people the help that they need. And in many cases, a lot of the people dealing with mental illness, they come from these broken families. So, you know, I believe mental illness is definitely something that is, you know, genetic. That's already proven medically. But I think that's something that also develops and it can worsen when you're on the streets for a long period of time. So drugs, uh, and I'm looking at it from a distance, but from what I'm reading, the drugs that are prevalent on the streets now are far more powerful than they used to be. Is that true? And they're getting cheaper. Let me give you an example. Fentanyl right now is one of the top killers of Americans between the ages of, I think, like, you know, 24 and 35. Um, and about three, four years ago, fentanyl pills uh, or the powder was about, you know, 30 bucks, 30 bucks a pill. Now it's down to 50 cents. The cartels are flooding American cities with this stuff. And the worst kept secret is that the ingredients are coming from China. Yeah. So I don't want to get into geopolitics here, but I've been following, again, the sourcing of a lot of this. And other think tanks have done the research as well. And you won't see these stories as much in mainstream media, but this pipeline, ingredients from China to the cartels, the cartels making these drugs now flooding the streets. This is in some ways becoming an, a reverse opium war. Um, you know, you're destroying an entire generation here in America, uh, if that's China's intent, right? Without firing yeah. a single missile, uh, you're you're killing off an entire generation and destabilizing a society, and that's what's happening right now, and that's what I'm seeing every single day. Yeah, the Opium War, which I believe was uh, 
at the end of the 19th century in China actually allowed uh, smaller countries such as France and Britain and even, I believe, America to colonize parts of China. And, and part of that was facilitated by getting the Chinese people hooked on, I believe it was morphine or opium, sorry, opium. And uh, the war had to do with the Chinese government trying to push that out. And uh, there is a certain ironic uh, comeuppance here uh, in that regard. So did you say that you could get a fix for 50 cents each? 50 cents a pill uh, a week ago. And and I I actually did a story. Uh, I followed uh, an outreach worker to to a homeless encampment. And there was a dealer who literally had sort of a drive-through window set up. It was a makeshift drive-through window that he built out of plywood. You knock on the plywood, and he gives you the fentanyl pills. And it was 100 pills for 50 cents each. The more you bought, the cheaper it got. That's what's happening right now. And he's got to be either under the employee or he's got somebody else who's his source. So. That it ultimately gets to the drug cartels, you're saying? Well, the cartels are fueling it. I, the ingredients are coming from China. Right. The Mexican cartels have them because our borders are wide open. And it's already on the streets of America. And these dealers are living in the midst of homeless encampments. You have and, homeless and, it's, and th- this is happening. These these transactions are happening in open air, right? And you've been actually open able air. to video them. Open air. They don't care about hiding it any longer, Wesley. That's what's so insane. These people are emboldened because of the lawlessness. They know Seattle is down more than 600 officers. They know that the Drug Enforcement Division doesn't have enough resources. So they do it in plain sight. It's no longer hidden. I can, If you come to Seattle, I can take you to six, seven different encampments where you can buy uh, all kinds of drugs, you know, from cocaine to meth. To fentanyl. Fentanyl is the cheapest, yet it's the deadliest. And and district attorneys uh, don't prosecute, and they're not trying to get the dealers, are they? Well, well, actually, what they're saying is they they don't want to arrest the addicts, but they're trying to go after the dealers. But it's not easy. You've got to yeah. you know you've got to build your case. You've got to have the evidence. Um, and the the men that I'm seeing in these encampments are low level dealers. They're not the actual that, big That's what power. I was thinking. These are not yeah. going to be the people who are making the big bucks. Exactly. And and what's so insidious about and sinister is that you have so many homeless people who are desperate, who are now being recruited to become dealers as well, uh, for, you know, making matters worse. Um, switching gears just a bit, you've been accused of being a hater by homelessness activists. Uh, how do you respond to that charge? I've been called everything under the sun. Uh, I've been called a fascist. I've been called a, a Nazi, a white supremacist. I've been canceled numerous <laughs> that's, times. That, that's kind of ironic since you're not white, right? Yeah, I'm Asian American in case <laughs> yes. your, your listeners don't know. Obviously, can't see me. But yeah, yeah it, it's, it's simply because it comes down to ideology, Wesley. Um, I'm calling out and exposing the homeless industrial complex, housing first, the whole harm reduction lobby. And they don't like that. There's also a group here in Seattle, an activist group, far left activists called Stop the Sweep Seattle. And they are, are, they are trying to stop encampment removals. So instead of offering these men and women shelter, 
uh, and providing shelter, every time the city comes in and sweeps an encampment, they simply shuttle people around to other parts of the city, creating more problems now for a different neighborhood. So what's have, have you ever interviewed that, these activists that, that you're just describing? What motivates I them? I don't understand that at all. Yeah, you know, that's something I haven't figured out. But the few interviews that I've done, they genuinely believe they're doing the right thing. What they're saying is ultimately they want the city and the government, and it sounds noble, but they want every homeless person on the street to have an apartment. They say, quote unquote, housing is a human right. And what that means is that these congregate shelters where you have to share rooms is not good enough. They must be given private studios and apartments. Obviously, uh, that's not going to happen right away when you don't have enough housing and resources. But isn't the aggregate housing better than being uh, under a sleeping bag in a, in a uh, doorway of a, of a store? You, you would think so, but that's what these activists say. Uh, th- that's why they, they say you're better off in an encampment because at least you have the freedom now to you know bring your spouse. Some shelters don't allow women if it's a men's shelter, right? Some shelters don't allow pets and animals. So the activists will say, you know, people need their pets and animals to be out here. And of course, all their stuff, the the hoarding that's happening at these encampments, you're not going to be able to bring them into shelters. So again, the the argument is just leave the people there until you give these people the proper housing. But Wesley, you have people looking at this. I, I call these people the reasonable majority of the citizens here in Seattle, and they're saying, are you crazy? Especially the immigrants. You know, I have some, you know, Jamaican immigrant friends who are working three jobs right now. I have Asian American immigrant friends working three jobs. They don't live in Seattle. They live in Tukwila, about 20 minutes out and say, I have to work three jobs because one day I want to make it to Seattle. I want yeah. to be able to get an apartment one day. Whatever happened to the American dream of working hard and earning your way? But what they're seeing here in Seattle is that they're giving away these apartments that infuriates the immigrants working two, three jobs just to survive and eventually make it to Seattle. It's really um, stunning to me that we as a, you know, I still believe the richest society in the world have come to a place where we don't uh, demand moral accountability from people who are living in the streets um, and, and taking drugs and, and from our uh, law enforcement and from our city leaders. It, it's really stunning. And, and the question then arises, how many children do you see on the street? It is just stunning that we're allowing this. Almost every encampment that I, I go to uh, you know, has a toddler at the very least, or somebody, a child living in a car. Isn't Um, that child abuse? Yeah, technically, but who's going to report it? You know, where's the accountability? Um, I have, every time I see somebody, um, for example, I I did a story where I recently went out with an outreach group because we saw a homeless woman who had her one-year-old son living in a tent, and she refused to go into shelters. So we had to, you know, pull strings and get her into a tiny house. You know, one of those, you know, you know, smaller houses with, you know, a bed and a, a door you can close. And that was the only way to get her out of there. But these people think that the tent situation is what's best for them. And they have children. Yes, that's child abuse. But we don't have enough workers. 
We don't have enough outreach workers going to these places to check. And when we, they do find the kids, you know, Wesley, the worst kept secret is they don't want to separate the parent and the child. So they won't report them, you know, to the, to the agencies. Are these kids going to school? Are they getting inoculations? Are they getting health care? Uh, yes, in some cases, uh, they are going to school. Uh, I don't know about the rest in terms of their history. Uh, it's it's difficult to talk to the parents uh, with kids in these circumstances because they don't want to be outed either. So it's really a tough situation all the way around. These encampments cannot be allowed to flourish, yet they are. Let me ask you, I mean, you have tremendous uh, hands-on experience. I mean, I, I encounter uh, people who aren't uh, housed, uh, and I you know tend to, I might, acknowledge them, but I tend not to engage with them. Perhaps that's my bad. But how do you think, and I think this is really important, how do we stand up for the intrinsic dignity of each of these people at the and while at the same time promoting community standards? It seems to me those are the two it seems to me those are the two factors that need to come together to create some kind of a balance and some kind of a situation that allows for help, but also allows for a decent uh, society and a decent community. Yeah, what we're seeing on the streets every day, again, here in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest is just the lack of care, a lack of accountability. Um, and uh, I'm at this point right now where I've already decided I can't fully rely on the government to handle this problem. So I believe it's a one person at a time approach. Um, yeah, I've, I've been you know guilty of just passing someone by uh, who's panhandling, but I also try to make it um, you know my 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 goal to to stop and at the very least have a conversation and to find out you know how they ended up on the streets. And when you end up talking to these people, you start to realize and you're reminded once again, this is someone's father, this is someone's mother, brother, sister, someone's child. And they all have a story and, you know, we, we all have a past and, uh, you know, they have different reasons for being on the streets. And my hope is that, you know, if we're able to, again, go with this one person at a time approach, you know, if we can even save one person that day, uh, then it's worth it. Um, and, you know, one of my uh, friends, uh, Andrea Suarez, she's with We Heart Seattle. She leads that outreach agency. Uh, she really challenged me this past year. She goes, Cho. You're not just a journalist. You got to remember that you're also part of this community. So you need to now think like an outreach worker. So if you see somebody, take a moment to stop, check on them, check the tent, ask if they need help. If you can't help them, you know, start building your network, a contact list of people you can call so you can get that person. Don't walk by any longer. Don't just give them a dollar bill so you can feel good about doing something good, you know? Take your take a moment, take 15 minutes to find out where that person's at. And that's really challenged me. And that's part of my repertoire now, Wesley. Oh, good for you. Uh, th this is a question I've had for a while, and you may not know the answer, and I wasn't planning on asking it, but our conversation brought this to my mind. You know, when I drive, I see uh, apparently homeless people on a particular corner, and it's always the same person on that same corner. And it made me think that there might actually be an organized approach to panhandling 
that uh, people are brought to their corners and then picked up from their corners. Um, do you think that happens or, or am I uh, just being paranoid there? Of course it happens. You're, you're spot on. <laughs> I have done stories. This is not even a new story. It's, it's a story that's been done in several markets, you know, across the nation where you have panhandlers making five, $600 a day. All those dollar bills add up when those cars go by, and then they walk straight to their apartments. You can't assume a panhandler's homeless or down and out. And in many cases, and that's why I, I don't, I don't give out money at all. What I always do is say, "Hey, do you need a meal? Are you hungry?" Yeah. And I try yeah. to buy it for them. And guess what, Wesley? In most cases, they reject my offer. And yeah, I've had. <laughs> I have to say, I've had that same experience. Where I'll, I will say, well, I'm sorry, but can I buy you a sandwich? And half the times I'll say thank you, and half the times I'll say no, I'm fine. You know, so yeah. it's uh, I, I, it, when I I think, and let me ask what you think, because what you think is is what this is about. That if you want to give on behalf of the homeless, it would be better to give to um, a nonprofit organization such as the um, ministries that you mentioned, the Salvation Army or the Rescue Missions, as opposed to what you called the homelessness industrial complex. Would you agree with that? Yeah, hundred percent. And I and I, I've sort of my worldviews expanded even further than that. Now, you know, hey, if you can't, you know, if you're going to give money, give to organizations and agencies that you know are effective and have measurable results. Uh, at the same time, I also believe that it's now our responsibility as well. I think now, like an outreach worker, you know, what can I do in that moment? You know, get to know your neighbors on your street. Homelessness is getting worse. All the data shows that the numbers keep going up. So. How can your community mobilize and get together to help the men and women who may be on the street corner, the same panhandlers? Will you make that attempt to get to know them? Ask them why they're there and, you know, try to get them the help and resources that they need. Um, I think that can become really effective boots on the ground, frontline work like that. It seems to me that this is uh, sort of akin to a cancer, not the people. I'm not equating the people with cancer, but this kind of um, anarchic squalor uh, can spread uh, from places like Seattle and San Francisco into the into the hinterlands and into smaller communities if we if we're not careful. Uh, do you see any of that happening? Oh, yeah, that's happening. This is not a problem, just a Seattle problem. Uh, you know, you're seeing smaller communities an hour, two hours away, uh, you know, from Seattle dealing with this as well. But it comes down to resources and also enforcement. Will you just continue to allow these encampments to flourish? Will you allow panhandling at the corner or will you intervene? Will, you know, the agencies and the people on the ground actually do something about it? And I think that's the biggest difference. Do, have you seen examples where, uh, rather than acquiesce and slouch toward this kind of uh, anarchic uh, approach, that uh, the kind of enforcement and in intervention that you just described, have you seen communities that did that and prevented the kind of uh, uh, horrors that you've been describing? Yeah, I think prevention is key. Um, I, I haven't seen actual examples where, you know, the communities mobilized and gotten in front of a situation before it spiraled out of control. But what I'm seeing now is that, again, you have more of these citizen-led nonprofits or citizen-led volunteer groups forming neighborhood groups that are just forming on social media sites like Nextdoor, or Facebook, or you know Instagram. And they're saying, we got to take back our neighborhood. 
Um, we've got to figure out what's going on. Um, we've got to work with law enforcement. We've got to identify the you know agencies out there. We've got to figure out where there's housing available, where there's shelter space. And if it comes down to it, we need to drive these people, the homeless, uh, on the streets to these places to detox. That's what I'm seeing, Wesley. So I'm hoping that that's going to continue that type of movement, but really requires the community now to step up. You can no longer just you know rely on the government. You've described um, the circumstance on the street, how um, not only is the uh, homelessness issue, but you end up with uh, you know the the arguing over various political uh, circumstances. You talked about the BLM protests and riots, and you said something the other day uh, on Twitter that that caught my attention. You said you've never seen so much anti-Semitism on the streets as you are seeing now. Describe what you're talking about there. You know, I, I've covered, uh, you know, all kinds of issues now um, for the past 20 years in my journalism career. And, uh, you know, at any time there'd be, you know, a swastika, you know, painted on a synagogue, you know, it would be a, a big story. You know, anytime an official was caught saying something anti-Semitic, you know, they'd be called out for it and it would be a big story. It, it'd essentially be unacceptable, not a social norm. Now, these days, with this the Israel-Hamas war, uh, at these protests, I am hearing calls for death to Jews and death to Israel, like it's a badge of honor. And obviously, it's not everyone who's out there protesting, but you have people essentially looking the other way instead of condemning it. And that's what I find so disturbing and troubling. People are now saying these things out loud. Now, now some have said, wow, well, why do you think there's such a rise in anti-Semitism? What I say is, I think it's always been there. It's just now, you know, on full display. And it's become acceptable, and it's become almost a social justice, part of the social justice movement, depending on what side you're on, right? It's like, if you're pro-Palestine, the Jews are evil. If you are pro-Israel, the Muslims are evil. The Palestinians are evil. Hamas is evil. So, I can't believe we've gotten to this point, Wesley, and that's why I kind of threw out that observation. But I'm just, I'm just seeing this every single day. I'm out covering these protests now. How long before you think you burn out? Because you can only deal with this kind of uh, horror uh, for so long. Uh, are you? Do you feel like or think that perhaps that you have a, sh a shelf life, and after that, you'll have to move on to a different endeavor? Well. I'm doing what I'm doing right now because I really believe it's a calling for me. Um, if there were other journalists out there on the front lines covering this stuff and showing what was really happening here in Seattle, I'd feel more comfortable maybe leaving and you know trying a different beat. Uh, but I've got to stay here uh, and cover this and show what's happening because I don't know who else will. Um, as for my shelf life, I don't know. I take it day by day, Wesley. Yeah. So I know, I know a, that feeling. I know that it's feeling. It's an honor and privilege to do what I'm doing right now. And I'm still having fun. Uh, but again, I feel like it's a, it's a responsibility as well. And I really appreciate all the community support, my followers, people who view and read my content, uh, who are my biggest cheerleaders who say, we need you out there. We need you showing this stuff. So I'm going to keep going for now. Well, that, that's excellent. I forgot to ask you, and I'll do it now. Uh, tell us about the Fix Homelessness Initiative that the Discovery Institute uh, is uh, sponsoring. Yeah, you know, that was uh, started before I, I joined the team about a year and a half ago. Um, and, uh, you know, it was to really, 
you know, highlight and show, uh, you know, best practices, uh, white papers and so on and so forth uh, on this topic. But uh, I got brought on to sort of show the everyday, again, raw realities on the ground through video. Uh, so we're expanding our team. Uh, we want to bring more people on. Um, and all it really takes is curiosity, uh, passion, and an iPhone. Uh, because that's all I use out there every single day, Wesley, to show what's happening. Um, we're looking for, you know, good citizen journalists. Uh, and if you can't be a part of this in terms of doing this every single day, keep sending news tips. Uh, so that's what this initiative has now become. It's gone from white papers uh, to viral videos. And it's well, you know, the videos and, you know, the old uh, the old comment about a picture's worth a thousand words videos get into the viscera, if you will, of, of what we're dealing with. I don't think you can describe uh, some of what you have documented in words nearly as well as seeing it and seeing the faces of the people and, and the um, the difficult nature of their lives. If that doesn't tug at your heart and make you understand that we need to ha uh, choose a different path, then I don't know what will. Yeah, you hit it right on the head, and um, that's that's what we believe uh, right now is the most effective way to bring about change in our communities, uh, to continue to highlight what's happening, and uh, video has been key for us, and, and social media, and the conversation isn't just local, uh, national outlets like Fox News, Newsmax, the cable channels, they're picking up on our work as well. Um, so that's, that's been rewarding. Uh, that's been an honor. Um, at the same time, they, they tell us our team, Hey, if you're not covering this stuff, we don't know what's, what's going on on the ground because what they're saying is even mainstream media outlets aren't showing this. So, right, uh, and, they, and mainstream media is imploding as well, and they don't have the resources to do what you're doing uh, uh, on the streets yourself. If somebody doesn't live in Seattle and would like to kind of begin to uh, do some of what you're doing, uh, if they contacted you, would you be able to help them, or would you would they be able to become part of that team? Oh, we welcome that, and uh, you're basically uh, previewing some of our plans for the new year. We're we're building out a program, sort of a citizen journalism training program, uh, for that very reason. We want more people to pick up this craft. We want more eyes and ears on the ground, because you know clearly I can't do this alone. And we're trying to expand outside of Seattle. I've traveled to different cities this past year, but. I'm done with travel this year because I am getting close to burnout. I got to finish my stories up in Seattle, but we need eyes and ears in San Francisco, Portland, Los Angeles, all across the nation, New York City, Chicago, Boston, places are dealing with the same crisis. And if people want to be part of that, uh, they can reach out to you at the uh, Discovery Institute? Yeah. I mean, DM me on social media, again, at Chosho, C-H-O-E-S-H-O-W, or check out our website, all the contact information at fixhomelessness.org fixhomelessness.org. And, and those links will appear in the program notes for this program. Well, I think we're about out of time. I uh, really admire uh, your grit and your commitment. And my next question is, uh, I think I know the answer, but what next for Jonathan Cho? Um, finishing this deadline today, <laughs> the one the next day and the following day. Uh, but yeah, you know, we're going into a new year. Um, I'm more committed than ever uh, to what's happening on the ground. And um, we aren't going anywhere. Uh, we're just going to keep on growing and continue to spotlight what needs to be shown on the ground. 
And obviously, if anybody wants to donate financially to that, they can contact you through the website. Yeah, no, uh, that would be much appreciated uh, because uh, this doesn't happen for free. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep in touch with uh, your work and uh, perhaps we'll have you on again because I think what you're doing is essential. Anytime, Wesley. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.